Hello and welcome to another wonderful episode of Walk the Walk with Yogi Lindsay. Again, this podcast is recorded live. It is unedited and comes from a conscious stream of whatever I can offer up in any given day based on my capacity. All of this comes from 20 years of practicing yoga, practicing mindfulness, practicing meditation, practicing pranayama, and being aware in as many moments of my life as possible and comes from a place of deep, loving, universal intention for the best and greatest and highest good of the world. Enjoy! Today we're going to talk about direct experience. Yes, y'all, direct experience. Uh, a friend of mine suggested recently that there was absolutely a need for a pastor in order to have an experience with the divine. And that's a laughable thing. It was a joke. We are the divine. And that's a really important thing to be able to look at. Now, within the context of classical yoga, classical yoga is the road to direct experience. It's a really lovely guide map that can kind of send us down the road to be able to understand what having direct experience is and how to obtain it for ourselves. If we so choose, we could go into the direction of religion. Um, and religion almost uh, exclusively does not allow for direct experience or suggests that the seeker is not ready for that. And that's fine. That's one way to look at it. Um, but as you go deeper into your spirituality and onto your seeking path, you start to have a, a, an understanding that there's something bigger than what is outlined in mainstream religion. And, and you find your own way. You, you feel it in your heart. It's a resonant quality. And with that comes the idea of direct experience and direct experience kind of like as contrast to everything else is what we're going to talk about today. Um, so let's take, for example, the idea of Christianity, which of course I grew up in and have a deep affinity for. Um, the idea of Christianity is that there is one way to experience heaven or go to heaven after one dies, um, and that is to believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior and the sole um, movement toward God, and that everything else is sinful. This is a lovely way to study Jesus of Nazareth and a beautiful understanding of uh learning his heart and understanding how he lived and doing what he did and walking that walk, right? Um, but direct experience would suggest that we can be like him rather than believing that he could save us. Okay, so there's kind of a, a difference there uh, pretty significantly. And that is replicated in all religion and to include even yoga. 
So in yoga, there's classical yoga, and then there are all sorts of other versions of yoga. Um, and in, to include traditional yoga and then like non-spiritual yoga and, you know, all these different kind of variations that have been created over uh, over the, basically just the last 20 to 30 years in our culture. Um, but as it relates to the original form, it, w- it was the idea was it was written down um, ideally thinking by Patanjali, who is seen as a half man, half serpent, right? And uh, so deified upon his death and, uh, you know, when he was alive, I'm sure he was a, a dude with legs, but, you know, when they deify uh, Hindu um, authorities, they tend to give them other <laughs> other things like like weird legs or like 14 more arms or, you know, discuses and shells and all these other things that they have in their hands. You know, they make them half monkey or half elephant or what what have you um and it's really just to to look at it in a way so that you don't take it too seriously more than anything um these these things are all here to teach us not to tell us to take anything real serious to this point of of getting beyond the point of what we're doing so classical yoga doesn't go against anything but it does uh, it does kind of house other religions. And so, you know, for example, in India, there are yogic traditions that um, deify all sorts of things, including Hindu gods and goddesses and people and, and gurus and swamis and all sorts of people and things. And that is very cool. And it's very, it's part of the Yoga Sutras, it's within the Yoga Sutras to um, use uh, an enlightened soul as a way to meditate upon their heart, to learn about them, to embody those aspects and those components of that person. So it's like Sutra like 137 or something like that in the first book, um, talking about the various ways that uh, various points of concentration within the sutras. One of them is, is to meditate upon the heart of an enlightened soul, of course, right? That's Christianity. So there you go. It fits right in. Um, but it also, that's also a very popular thing in, in lots of different religions, uh, where there is a a single focus, um, a single deity, a single entity that is the savior of all. And, um, and so there's worship involved. So this is where classical yoga and direct experience would veer off and away from the idea that somebody needs to get in the way of you and God. Just the way it is. Okay. I think that some of this might come from just um, a Judeo-Christian mindset of good and bad and right and wrong, which in reality, none of that exists. Because who is to determine what good and bad and right and wrong is? Like, it's all, if if there's 9 billion people on earth, then there's going to be 9 billion different opinions on what's good, bad, right, wrong. So in that way, we just throw it out the window and say that that doesn't simply exist. Um, And instead, we consider karma. We look at the idea of karma. And that being that my, like my dad, who's, uh, you know, been a Christian Catholic his entire life, he says in one of the things that I've learned from him in my life profoundly over the years is what what goes around comes around, Linz. That's what he'll say is what goes around comes around. And uh, and there's a, a tremendous amount of truth to that. 
that's basically the idea of karma is that with every egoic action whether it's good or bad you're there's going to be some sort of additional thing or action that occurs based on that idea so you can do lots of good quote unquote good in the world and create more good karmas <laughs> but the idea is to create zero karmas so to act without the ego as much as possible so as not to create karmas and in that way what are you going to do well if you know that every good or bad thing that you do is going to and i'm using the air quotes you can't see my air quotes but i'm using the air quotes every time i say the word good or bad the air quotes are up okay um <laughs> if we if we consider what we're going to do before we do whether it's a good or a bad or or a, a not a good or a bad or a mixed sort of thing as the sutras would suggest then um you know we're we're adhering to our own set of standards and monitoring our own selves and being responsible for our actions so as not to be parented by um, like a deity so much as parented by ourselves and the profundity in all excuse me, the profundity in all of that is is that what powers that focus and that drive and that responsibility and that spiritual maturity is inspiration from direct experience <laughs> yes yes it's so not worship it's so not worship right because when we worship we're like what are we worshiping and this goes to the uh the ten commandments when uh, moses said thou shalt not worship false idols what are we worshiping? How do we know that we're not worshiping false idols if we're worshiping something? Whereas when you have your own direct experience, you're not worshiping anything. You're actually having a direct experience of the divine within you in the moment. And in this way, it seems silly and irrelevant to deify humans or put up on a pedestal anything or anyone other than you know, maybe to learn and to create a sense of connectivity, you know, to meditate upon Jesus's heart or the Buddha's, the Buddha's heart, um, that can be really, really powerful and profound, but not to the point where you separate yourself from Jesus or Buddha by worshiping them instead, okay? So this kind of leads me into this interesting controversy between uh, traditional yoga and classical yoga. Traditional yoga and classical yoga are both valid. Um, it's called traditional yoga now. It used to be called something different. Um, whatever, that's a whole other podcast. Um, but the, these are two uh, orthodox sects of uh, orthodox sects. These are two sects of orthodox Hinduism. Um, and from a scholarly standpoint, and they're both valid. And uh, it's hard to say which one came first. We do know that the Yoga Sutras were um, written down by Patanjali about 2,300 years ago. Um, but the Vedas were around for longer than that. And some um, kind of ritualistic practices um, that are still used in traditional yoga today are were written down before that. So, but either way, we're talking about a long time ago. <laughs> so, um, they're both relatively, you know, 
uh, we'll see grounded. <laughs> They're definitely grounded. And and that is also to say it's hard to, it's hard to determine because um, things weren't written down for a long, long time, right? So it's suggested that people could have been practicing classical yoga for like 10,000 years. Um, but who knows, really? But it's only just to say that Patanjali wrote the, the sutras down 23 years ago. Um, and prior to that, it had been an oral tradition for thousands of years. We know that. So, you know, it's an interesting kind of look at things. Um, the, the Yoga Sutras originally were really written for forest yogis, for, um, for sannyasis, for those who have removed themselves from society. Um, and, and some people would consider the, the classical yoga, like an emaciating sort of thing where it's, it's all about like sensory deprivation and being with your mind and, um, depriving you of all of your, your needs and all, all of your wants and all of your desires and, and housing you into a, into a, like a little glass box where you can't see out. And, and that's one way to look at it. Okay. Um, I'll go with, you know, my lineage, my teachings stem from Krishnamacharya. So Krishnamacharya, uh, he, just to give you time context, he died in 1989 and he was like 90 something, 94, 95, something like 96. And that, he died like two years after he healed his own hip, okay, with his hands, like not with modern medicine <laughs> or Western medicine by, by any standard. Um, and, and his main students were BKS Iyengar, which you've probably heard of, um, who does the kind of alignment based non-vinyasa practices. And he's, his, his daughter is still very much, uh, teaching in India, um, in the Pune area. Um, and then, uh, Patabi Joyce, who is the founder of Ashtanga Vinyasa, right? So these, this is, this is the lineage that I, that I grew up in as far as my philosophy, as far as my training, as far as my practices and where they've stemmed from. Um, and, and, you know, very significant devout yoga has, has been happening in this context for a really long time. And these guys, they brought forest yoga, the eight limbs, Patanjali's yoga, classical yoga, they brought it to the householder. And these men practiced, you know, like Iyengar practiced for 70 something years before he died. And the dude was profound. You know, there's so many books that he's written and he's very, very powerful. And it's easy to see that he was definitely in a space of, of working from a, a wisdom body and, and aligning his energies very, very powerfully. Like it's hard to, to disagree with that. And, you know, he's he wrote numerous books about how to apply the classical yogic um, philosophies and practices to modern householder life. Um, so did Patabi Joyce. So that so let me just so just so you know, within the context of like who's teaching classical yoga and who's teaching like this other traditional yoga stuff. Basically, if you go to any Hatha yoga studio um, or like Shivananda or, or the Kripalu Institute or, you know, places like that, things like that, where there's swamis or, um, kind of leaders of the community, um, that are, that are holding space for like ashrams to exist, where there's any kind of Hindu deity worship, those, that's more in the lines of, of traditional yoga, um, where there's deities, 
that are worshipped. You know, that's how it goes. Um, but with classical yoga, we're not worshipping deities and we're doing our practices and that's what it's very much like. So there's a crossover between the the worshipfulness and the spirituality and the context of the practices. But within the realm of classical yoga, there's um, there's chanting, there's meditation, there's, you know, all of the things, all of the worshipful things, all of the devotional quality, all of the intention behind it, but it's not to a specific entity. It's more um, kind of approached from a place of understanding one's true nature more than understanding something outside of us, okay? And you can do that in various different ways. Um, so let me just go over the eight limbs just so you understand like what we're talking about here if you're not aware. So we've got the yamas, um, which are um, kind of just observances for the self. So we've got ahimsa, which is non-harm, satya, which is truthfulness, asteya, which is non-stealing, aparigraha, which is uh, non-material hoarding and possessions and gifting, and brahmacharya is uh, the control of one's sexual, sensual energies and fluids there. And then we have the niyamas. This is the second limb. So the first limb is basics, like, you know, take care of things. And then the the niyamas are shausha, which is cleanliness, santosha, which is the practice of contentment, shausha, santosha, tapas is uh, kind of literally the energetic heat that you build through your practice, doing something that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise do. Svadhyaya is uh, prayer and uh, the practices of scriptures and, and um, kind of understanding right knowledge in ways that have been written down. And then Ishvara Pranidana is a devotion to God. So there, right then and there, you can see, of course, that yoga is is definitely a very theistic path because there's a reference to to God right there in the, you know, in the first two limbs of this eight limb path. Then third limb is asana, which is the practices that we do in the yoga studios, you know, the bouncing around, the on the handstands and the chaturanga dandasanas and the back bends and the leg behind the heads and all the happy, fun postures that we do. Um, the fourth limb is pranayama, and those are your breath practices. We do a lot of that at the shala in Carborough. We spend easily 20 minutes each class on pranayama, if not more than that some days. Um, the fifth limb is pratihara, which is sense withdrawal. Uh, and I translate this to a place of understanding that sense withdrawal is less about tuning out of the external world and more about tuning into the internal world. So basically turning the senses inward to use them for what they were meant for, which is to perceive the divine. Um, okay, so then sixth, seventh, and eighth, dhyana, dharana, dhyana, uh, samadhi. Dhyana, dharana, samadhi, which are the, the kind of trifecta of the movement within the realm of samyama, which is from concentration to meditation to a samadhi experience and, and a, a, a samadhi experience that evolves and grows and blossoms deeper and deeper over time. So the eight limb path is something that, you know, I think even like Lululemon has been promoting over the years. Like it's it's not anything abnormal. Um, and and like, let's say, for instance, brahmacharya from, from a very strict forest yoga standpoint of be in a box, be in a 
hole where you can't see or hear think you know, all you can do is like pay attention to your mind um brahmacharya would be celibacy but um as we sort of evolve and shift and move to a modern day householder society we're talking less about say celibacy and more about say you know committing to a single partner for life or something along these lines so the the just like we modify the really skillful hard postures we modify the really skillful hard concepts so that we can adapt to the modern world so that we can adapt to our householder lifestyles because honestly living in a cave is something that i've done okay and not literally a cave but a sensory deprived environment for lengthy periods of time um and and being a householder is invariably and arguably to me harder that's what i said okay um because within the realm of understanding our own mind we don't have to deal with the wills of others and that's where it becomes more challenging right it's, we can we can sit in a hole by ourselves and study our mind and be enlightened but then it's, that's when where ram das comes and say you think you're enlightened go spend a weekend with your family you know and that that even ram das is speaking just in that quote to the importance of classical yoga of having a direct experience um and direct experience comes in all forms all day long as long as you're doing the practices okay so the suggestion is then that you practice these eight limbs and uh, over the course of time you gain insight you gain wisdom you gain energy you gain vigor you gain momentum and the yoga sutras really provide a, a beautiful kind of guide uh like a roadmap per se of of the spiritual kind of path like the first sutra is atta yoga nushasanam now is the time for the teachings of classical yoga <laughs> okay that's the first one <laughs> the second one is yoga yoga is the stilling of the movements in the mind okay yoga it's it's a practice and it's a state the state of mind is no thoughts bliss and the practice of it to to get to the state of it is very helpful okay um so it's 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 very much like that as it goes along and it provides just a, a beautiful kind of roadmap so that you don't have to feel like you're giving yourself up or worshiping something when it doesn't feel appropriate to you now there are plenty of people that like to worship stuff and things and people and all and that, and that is great and that is wonderful and they there's tradition and ritual and beauty and and grace and loveliness to all of that but it has to resonate within the seeker and 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 I'm and if it resonates then please let it resonate I'm not trying to change anything here but I but just to ensure that there is an understanding that direct experience is the ultimate sort of situation that we're all seeking and and so this this then kind of leads into this idea of how i want to look at asana and how it's how how the teaching of it is so interesting in this way and how much like flack i've gotten over the years for teaching vinyasa 
and and suggesting that it's a very very spiritually driven sort of thing and I just like look at people like uh I don't know like I don't, okay whatever you know it's really hard to argue with that like how could how could your your very strenuous uh, uh vinyasa classes be anything other than just glorified jumping around fitness classes <laughs> like what am I supposed to say to that <laughs> like I don't okay guess it's not for you then <laughs> like I don't know right and 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 that's almost you know just like the Gita says in the second chapter um don't disrupt the ignorant <laughs> you know um I find within the realm of the very profound and powerful yoga practice that I do that I am able able to um channel energies and disseminate consciousness out to the most distal regions of the body based on my level of awareness and my body based on the very significant and skillful practice I've done over the course of many years. My students would probably say something very similar to that in the way of like you're with skillful asana, with vinyasa, with the fluidity of vinyasa movements, you're absolutely expanding your conscious intelligence in a very very embodied way and for me my question right back to that question is how could you really feel fully conscious without having full awareness of the anamaya kosha of the physical body how how could you possibly get deep into the energetics and into the wisdom body and into the bliss body without going through the physical body first so that's my argument. And, and, and when you are seeking mastery of the physical body, it's a very deeply spiritual process of learning how unbelievably divine you are from your fingernails back to your heart and your heart down to your tippy toes. It's just such an amazing process. And within the realm of the vinyasa practice comes this understanding of bandhas. Bandhas being an energetic contraction within the body that is associated with musculature in the core, in the pelvic floor, and in, and in the, pel the, the abdominal wall in the front that kind of like locks down in like two by fours into a foundation. This is where homeostasis can be absolutely controlled within the human body is to I mean I talk about it every day with my students is you can harness the energy of healing and uh, you can affect positive uh, and positivity within the body and incorporate homeostasis at a very like um, aware level within the body by simply learning how to engage your bandhas Interestingly enough, learning how to engage your bandhas for most people takes five to ten years of daily practice. And if you're practicing to that extent, you're probably getting uh, more skillful at it over the course of time. And that's kind of just how everything goes. So, you know, nobody talks to a piano teacher and says, hey, are you sure you want to get so good at the piano? <laughs> no. And people who go to piano lessons go to somebody who's really good at the piano. So the idea is within the realm of the asana, you're learning not just how to play an, an external instrument or something external to you. You're learning how to play the music of your own body. And what could be more divine than that? Within the vinyasa practice comes 
incredibly floaty, light, beautiful movements that are are created through precision of alignment, of awareness, of skill, of concentrating the mind, the heart, the body, and all of the energetic uh, centers of the body in line. Like in order to float, you have to be energetically aligned from the root to the crown. And that's there's a physiological alignment that has to happen in order for the energetic body to be able to turn on with a lot of grace. And then the pranayama practice helps us to really master um, the energetic body from a from a deeper perspective and and a, and a, a deeper level of um, of having agency over the body and, and 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 allowing it to be your best friend. <laughs> right um this is this body it's been gifted to us like it's an amazing thing to study to master to look at to to deepen into to ground into and to fly up and into like it's such a beautiful amazing process to learn how to use the body um it's nothing but spiritual there's nothing there's nothing but spiritual devotion to it because you you the more you know it the more you know what it's made of and that is divine universal love. And that in and of itself can provide a tremendous direct experience. But that direct experience then expands over the course of time. So who knows, I, I'm so excited and stoked for like whatever I'm gonna feel in like 20 years or like 40 years, you know, just because the continuation of the daily practice allows for this big expansion of awareness um, and, and this big, beautiful responsibility of caring for oneself at a very deep level um, to the point where, you know, like, you know that you're a god goddess so deeply that you worship that which is you. And you recognize your personality and your humanness and all of that, but it's not separate at all from your divinity. It's all the same thing. And, um, and, and within that, you know, I've talked, I talk so much psycho spiritual, you know, psycho babble, <laughs> but like, this is the ultimate in f having a sense of worth. Like if you know that you are made out of divine protons, neutrons and electrons, and you're just made out of a bunch of divine goo, like, you're going to honor yourself, you're going to love yourself because you're a little raindrop in the ocean. Right? What a beautiful concept. Direct experience. It's not a bad thing. It's actually the most beautiful thing that could ever exist. And there's, there's a lot to be said for other um, areas where you might experience, have a direct experience. I was telling a friend of mine the other day, that I've decided exactly what my most favorite thing in life is. Ready? Okay. My most favorite thing in life is being witness and watching somebody do something that connects them to their inner divine. I love to watch like that. There's um, all sorts of great things on Netflix about professional climbers and um, free solos. This, this, uh, if you haven't seen free solo on Netflix, you've got to, you've got to watch it. Like, Dude is this crazy mountain climber who doesn't use equipment. <laughs> 
And he was so profound with what he was doing. There was a, he was climbing, uh, climbing El Capitan, which is in Yellowstone, I think, somewhere. And it's like this massive face and it's uh, the highest or the best or the worst or one of the worst in the world or something. I don't know. And it's, it's crazy. And in one of these um, moves that he makes, he's got to go from one hand and he's got to jump <laughs> to another handhold because he can't reach. So he's actually got to jump his body from one part of the rock to the next and he's got no equipment. And so he, he talks about in this movie, like, yeah, I'm afraid or something, you know, he says, but like, I'm just going to practice it so many damn times that I'm not only going to not be afraid, but I'm going to be arrogant about it. And that's kind of what we're looking at. Minus the arrogance, of course, but like we're looking at the practicing so much and understanding and feeling so confident in what we are and what we're doing that there's not enough fear to make us look outside of ourselves for divine comfort. What a profound thing, you know? Um, I love to watch that. I love to watch bands, music. I love to watch drummers. I love to watch sports. Any Anything where like I can tell somebody's in the zone. Like I love to watch John Mayer play the guitar Oh my gosh, if you've not seen this, you must see it. You know, just various situations. So I'm not saying that like yoga is everything. Like there are tons and tons and tons of spiritual people out there that are artists, that are musicians, that are playing something that where they're using their bodies to create sound or visual or, you know, something where they're absolutely divinely inspired. Dance, ecstatic dance is one of these things. You know, watching a beautiful dancer, understanding that the fluidity that comes from dance comes from so much training and so much precision. And and that the precision of focus, you know, that's like Daharana Dhyana Samadhi. Like you have to be able to f- concentrate to be able to meditate. And it's basically I was in my training – with an old teacher, I don't know if this is true. It, it's maybe, I don't know, maybe. Um, 20, it takes about 20 minutes of concentration to move into meditation and it takes about 20 minutes of meditation to move into a samadhi experience. Like if you're looking at it from a, a seated meditation standpoint. Maybe that's true. But, you know, you go to a, a, a rock concert and dudes are not making a mistake for like two hours straight. What is that? That's significant, you know, if it's, if it's only 20 minutes of concentration to get to meditation, then we're talking about people having samadhi experiences within their creative endeavors all the time. And we get to watch that. That's one of the most profound and most delicious things in life for me is to watch somebody do something that connects them to God. What an amazing experience to be witness to. And, and you know, open your eyes. <laughs> Look around. You might find the more you look around, the more you're going to see direct experiences being had around you all the time. And what a gorgeous thing to be able to be witness to because it, what it does then is it spawns your own growth. It's, it continues. It inspires you. It motivates you to continue doing what you're doing. And, and that inspiration might give you a quick dopamine hit, but it's not going to be nearly as powerful as the inspiration and the motivation that you get to be able to do your own work to sustain it within yourself. 
and that's the power of 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 understanding that we are here to experience we're here to practice we are here to find more awareness we are here to find spiritual depth we are here to love one another and to love one another we have to be aware of ourselves and with the awareness of ourselves like how do we get that well practice of course and then so the more you practice and the eight limbs are great for you know any sort of foundational understanding of anything you could practice or do um, whether it's prayer or meditation you know you got to work your body you got to move your body you got to move your breath you've got to you know be a good person in the world like don't be a slut like all of these things you know these are very very basic things that we can connect to and then not have to worry about like what's gonna happen or where we're gonna go or who we're gonna piss off or any of that stuff because inevitably we're here to find the divine within ourselves we're here to have that direct experience and there's nobody that needs to get in the way of that um and i think that that is really really important in this day and age to be able to put that message out and to remind that you know you can um you can give your power up to someone else or you can give your power up to god right and that's the idea of the the guru student sort of dynamic is the guru is is sort of this intermediary between you and the divine and i was reminded today that osho has a has a pretty long-standing issue with intermediaries as it relates to spirituality but on a on a different level, I'm looking at it from this idea of light and grace and openness, as opposed to um, as opposed to a disdain for anything. And because here's the thing: spiritual gurus, pastors, preachers, priests, um, shamans, anybody along the shamanic path, like anybody, although they would never suggest themselves to be gurus or teachers, because that's not what shamans are, but um, anybody who is holding uh, space for others in a spiritual dynamic, myself, of course, you know, some sort of spiritual leader of sorts, like these people are very, very helpful to have in our lives because they provide guidance and, and you know, teachers, gurus help us to kind of see the next step in front of us and, and guide us in the direction that, that we're going. But at some point, you just don't need that, you know? And and at some point, that's the idea. That's what we're, we're seeking, is to be able to communicate and commune with the divine energies. You know, the Christians call this heaven, is to just commune with divine energy. Um, but we can have that right here, right now. It's really just a matter of practice and manifestation of that, if that's what you're seeking in your life. So I'll probably close up there. That sounds like a good place to stop. And, and hopefully there's been some kind of recognition or acknowledgement at the very least at the worthiness and the profound power of all humans. All humans are humans. And we all have the ability to be jerks or we have the ability to be just like Jesus. And it's... The beauty is in our will and our conscious choice and our decisions that we can make all day long for ourselves 
to find deeper senses of joy and heaven in our hearts right here and now. So I hope this has inspired you to find your own direct experience in your life. If you are interested in deeper understandings of any of this, please, 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 please contact me. I would love to talk to you and um, talk about your direct experience. So have a wonderful, beautiful day, everyone. This has been Walk the Walk with Yogi Lindsay.